Hey there, welcome to ATL and 29 of Peachtree Hoops Pod, where we look at the NBA from the starting point of Atlanta. My name is Kevin Chenard. I'm here with Glenn Willis of Peachtree Hoops. Glenn, uh, I have to ask you, uh, how many times better are the Memphis Grizzlies than the Atlanta Hawks? Is it 20 times, 50 times, 600 times? Seven and a half. <laughs> Wait, how many? Seven and a half. Seven and a half, wow. Ooh. Yeah. No, it's drastic. That was lower than any numbers you threw out for me to, for me to grab onto. <laughs> okay. Uh, how much talk do you want to put in that game? Um, little. As little effort as the Hawks did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, they, they, you know, they had the eight-game road trip and – that overlapped with last night's stretch of games, which was five games and seven nights. Uh, not great uh, to hit that second back-to-back in seven days there. Nope. After the game, Nate McMillan said something to the effect of, this is what we're going to deal with in the playoffs. Memphis... Uh, was physical Memphis was holding Memphis was scrapping and he said that uh, they started begging for calls whining for calls looking for calls and he said this is what's coming in the playoffs we've got to get used to it Uh, how much stock do you want to put in that I think there's a lot of truth in it Um, you know I think a coach is going to look at his team and say this isn't good enough and take the opportunity, especially when the team's been winning a lot. Coaches, when teams are coming off of a win streak or coming off of a, you know, a stretch of good success are, are going to almost look for any opportunity to get, get on their team. That's just, that's just how coaches function. And this was an opportunity for, for Nate to do that. I, I think that most people are like, this season is a serious grind down so many bodies at the four and the five, you know, they didn't have really any rim protection um at all um and you know i mean who was more set up for the schedule loss the hawks or the grizzlies in that game i think we have an argument just over just over over that from the loss side of it um but it's one i just kind of you know you know rinse my hands off quickly and move on and i don't really put too much into it but understandably a a coach is going to handle that differently you know And, and i do think he's right in that um, if the Hawks kind of take a similar mentality into a postseason context and expect that um, you know, any moment of physicality is going to get the attention of the officials, they're going to be, you know, sever- severely disappointed. <laughs> um, and you know, But that's something that teams have to learn when they kind of, um, you know, get into a playoff for the first time, even if the Hawks have a number of, you know, players now with quite a bit of postseason success, it's built around Trey and guys like Herder and Hunter and JC and others are going to have to kind of acclimate to that. And it kind of starts with Trey. I think Trey was super frustrated and a lot of his um, messy play came back to his frustration with the officials. But again, I think that was very likely preceded by, the fatigue domino that kind of fell into the frustration domino. So I think you, I think he can be right. And fans are an observer like me can be right in saying, eh, it's just a really rough 
schedule and it's a grind. And I put out on Twitter last night, every team, every team in the league has had a handful of games like this. And so it's just really nothing to overly react to. But like I said, Nate's going to not let the opportunity to get on this team pass them by, <laughs> in my view. As, uh, as shorthanded as the Hawks were, it did sort of pose an interesting puzzle as to, you know, how do you craft a big man rotation last night? And they ended up starting a Kong Wu and bringing in Nathan Knight off the bench. Uh, would you have done the same thing? Would you have done it differently? How did you approach trying to get uh, 48 minutes of center out of what they had available to them last night? Yeah, well, if the top goal is to get a win, and it's we've been having to qualify that for a few years now, I think this late in this season, we ha- I think we have to assume that is the top goal because they, they need wins and they need seeding and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So – and the reason I qualified it, the only reason I qualified it is in that I think there was a lot of value to getting a Kongwu minutes um, against, you know, a front-wide physical guy like Valanciunas, you know, in terms of getting him acclimated to, you know, the kind of play they're going to need from him in the, in the playoffs. Presumably he'll be in the rotation, even if it's just like 10 minutes a game, you know, maybe in that range. And so there was an opportunity to put him there. I was local um, before the game that I would start Bruno, um, mostly to protect a Congo from foul trouble because Valentinus is and pretty he, famous. He, he did avoid that. He did. He did, and he had a good start, you know. Um, and, and so I made a joke after the fact that I was batting a hundred like Neek, you know, um, <laughs> with my with my um, insistence that doing that Bruno starting was the right thing because the Congo had just such a really good start. Um, but, you know, I, I, Hawks fans are I, – I got so much pushback on Twitter for my comment that I would like to see Bruno start. I think Hawks fans are just sick of watching him, and right. um, that's the consistent feedback that I got. And I, and I, I get that. Um, what I see in Bruno is he's very – really solid defending near the ball screen at the point of attack. Right. Um, and when when he can function from a set defense after made baskets, you know, dead ball turnovers, what have you, he's a better all-around defender than Kongu is right now. There's, in my mind, there's no doubt about that. Kongu is already a better decision maker, which doesn't speak well for Bruno, and a much better help defender. But when it comes to just kind of getting your defensive base set, Bruno's going to give you more there, in my opinion. Now, Having said that, Okongu got helped them get off to just an absolutely fine start defensively, and he, he exceeded my expectations for how I th- thought the start would go. But I'm not a believer that Nathan Knight is a center at all. And I, you know, I get that when Memphis runs their second unit out there, they basically play five out all the time, and that helps. But I still believe in rim protection. You know, even if the other team's playing five out, you want someone that can kind of clean up things. Um, you know, near, in the paint if it comes down to that. So, you know, I, I'm just – I, you and I talked about the two-way players, you know, three or four, I think, episodes back when we were on together. And I think Nathan Knight was an absolutely great find, you know, on that kind of contract and that kind of spot on this you know, bigger roster. Right. But I, it's the Knight presence at the five that I think was most problematic, more so than whether – um, you know, Bruno should have started or Kongwu. I, th- I think, like I said, looking back, I think they're getting a ton of value out of starting Bruno from, you know, h- him building up repetitions and, um, 
in situations that are important for him, but I just thought the Mike minutes were going to be atrocious and it, it didn't stand out because they were all bad, <laughs> but he wasn't good <laughs> defensively. Right. right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I actually agree with you. I think I would have started Bruno just looking to keep a little more continuity with the bench unit. Uh, I, you know, I, probably would have ended up playing a Kongu more minutes than Bruno, probably uh, by a decent chunk, to be honest. But I think if you start Bruno, you kind of match the physicality a little better. You keep your rim protector for the bench. You, uh, and honestly, I guess, you know, the biggest thing I think is Bruno just needs a mind wipe, like just, just clear the slate, you know, just something like a fresh start. And, uh, you know, if you get lucky and, and you get a good game from Bruno last night, I think it could go a long way for, for him, you know, being a useful player in spot duty going forward. Yeah. And and I think, I think, I also think fans don't, and I know I watch the game differently than, so I'm the outlier when it comes to like how I watch the game. So I always want to kind of acknowledge that, but the the primary re- the primary reason Bruno doesn't work right now is on offense. Right. You know they're built around guys that can set the screen and dive to the rim and be a lob threat, all that sort of. And that's just not what Bruno does. I, right. It's weird because he seems like a completely, um, you know, normal athlete for that position and kind of in that role. But he's just doesn't have a ton of coordinated verticalities. I guess is the term that right. I would use. He's not and, enormous. He's yeah, he's undersized. He's a and, large human, but he's not a large NBA center. And he's great running the floor. I mean, he's fast and, you know, he's got good feet and and all that sort of stuff. But when you get into the half court, the kind of – he's a good screener too, but his fill, his timing, his, you know, his ability to kind of move behind the defense and kind of sense that pocket to go to the – he just doesn't have it. For whatever reason, that just doesn't exist – he can't do that. And that sort of disqualifies him from playing at the five for sure when Trey is because of how much high screen role they run. And now that they have Lou, similarly, maybe he could do some things, but, but his lack of fit is really way more about offense than defense. And that's not me saying he's a perfect defensive player. He still makes you shake your head, you know, pretty frequently around like, what was he thinking or what did he see or, you know, why was he a full step or two behind? Like his, his transition defense is weird and stuff. So he still makes a ton of mistakes and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I just think that, you know, the Hawks fans don't realize that they basically have flushed all of their pistol action on offense and have are using maybe, I would guess, like somewhere in the range of 10 to 15% the amount of DHO they were using last year. And that's where Bruno fits great is – up near the elbow, working in DHO, kind of swinging the ball from one side of the floor to the other in that handoff, and they're just not doing that this year. And that, and they're they're doing way more nat- traditional high screen and roll. And that, and he's great at the pistol stuff. He has good hands there. He's confident there. He kind of knows what he's doing there. They're just not running the stuff he's good at this year. So that's um, kind of where that where that sits. But I know nothing I'm saying is going to make very many Hawks fans you know, open themselves up up to buying back into even some of Bruno in the rotation. So it is what it is. I mean, he's he's got to adapt though because he's not a player for whom you tailor what the offense is. 
He does, or he just needs to be somewhere else. And that's what I think. Right, but even like, I suppose, but I don't know. How, how far in the weeds do, do teams go in terms of trying to acquire, you know, a 12th man that is the right fit for the style that they play? I mean, I suppose it could happen, but you know, honestly. Right. Yeah, I mean. He just needs to get to a point where regardless of the offense, he, then he, he makes better decisions because he, you know, the biggest thing is he just can't turn the ball over as much as he does. He, you know, yes. He's, he's yeah. a good defender and you, you, you know, Lou has morphed in, you know, his career has kind of taken this strange correct trajectory where he's gone from sort of an ISO player to a pick and roll player, but you lose the type of player that he's versatile, versatile enough that you could kind of, see Bruno working with him. But, uh, Agreed. Know. Yeah, I, I think it's more realistic to think Bruno become could become a functional pick-and-pop guy if he could get a consistent shot at all. I don't, I don't see the dive action ever happening for him personally. No, that's right. Yeah, when, when I was talking about the trajectory of Lou's career, I was more saying that he kind of revert to his old style as opposed to playing the new style. Sure. That, you know, if, if he just kind of functions as sort of a dominant ball handler, you know, but a good decision maker, and it's just up to Bruno to kind of read and react and come in from the dunker zone and things like that, you know, he could handle that. But honestly, I do think that the pick and pop thing was part of the vision that they originally had for Bruno and it just hasn't really materialized. Agreed. Um, how concerned are you about Trey uh, just in terms of wear and tear where his offense is right now? I know that eventually the third quarter became uh, all 11 or the Hawks made all 11 of their three point attempts in the third quarter. But the way that quarter started, it honestly felt to me like, Oh, well, this is the first time in a while that Trey's sort of gotten in a groove. Like, there are points where Trey can just take over a game. And there were a lot more of those at the, at the beginning part of the season. And it seems like uh, more recently it's, it's been fewer and far between and you know, that, that third quarter was really the first time in a long time where it's like, Oh, Trey's Trey's getting in a groove. Um, and kind of tying it back into that last discussion you know how does he fit in playoff basketball you know will if he's sort of not in a groove uh how does he make it work and try in terms of trying to figure out where the points for him and the points for the team come from uh when he's not in possession of an a plus jumper or an a plus floater yeah so um Scala one to ten, my concern with Trey is probably sitting at a five, maybe starting to tip towards six. Um, and it's wear and tear. I think it's more in the area of wear and tear and fatigue, like where all my concern is. He just looks like a guy that maybe has hit a wall physically. Um, you know, I want to make sure I'm clear. I'm not reporting that or none of us have heard that, you know. I just that, That's just my observation. You know, he just looks like a guy who's 
tired and he's a smaller guy, you know, obviously in a really condensed season. So um, it's a tough situation because the Hawks need every win. Um, But at the same time, I think the last time you and I talked, I said they're probably going to have to sit Trey about three-ish times the rest of the year to kind of keep him, um, you know, fresh enough to kind of get all the good stuff from him that they need where they go get those games, you know, I haven't looked at the whole schedule yet and stuff. And, you know, another eight game win streak would certainly take a lot of pressure off and give them a little bit more space to to feel good about doing that. Um, but, you know, I, I guess, what, like I said, when I look at the schedule, I think they prioritize the Charlotte games, the Miami games, you know, the, I think they're done with Boston. So that's not there. Um, Indiana, they should have at least one more with them. Uh, I only recall them playing one time this year. So those games were against teams that they're really vying for position. I think the Raptors are kind of falling out. So that, um, I think if they have one more there. Um, so so hopefully they'll find some opportunities to not necessarily find a game where it's easy to sit him, but to identify the games where he really has to play because of the positioning in, in the standings. Um now, in terms of, like, what happens in the playoffs, that's going to be super fascinating. But I actually think it's one of the – you know, I don't know how strategic Travis was about this and, and then the broader um, brain trust around, you know, roster decisions and things like that. But Nate's been playing Trey and Lou together a lot. And I that think there's – next question. Yeah. I think there's an opportunity, potentially – to get Trey working off ball a little bit more when he's on the court with Lou. And I, I really think for them to kind of build up to a game plan that's going to um, not result in Trey just, you know, passing the ball out of traps and hard hedges and, you know, all that sort of stuff is going to be, you know, starting Trey off ball and kind of bringing him into the play and, um and because Lou can get them into all the same actions Trey can, which is different from what Rondo could do, I think there's an opportunity for Nate just to, as he can, we know there's defensive issues, you know, on the other end of the court, you know, um, but as much as he can get Trey and Lou out there, I think hopefully that the coaching staff can start steering Trey towards embracing more than he ever has, starting at least starting off ball. I don't think that means you have to function the whole position off ball, but I mean, you know, I always emphasize, you know, the Kittle Walker trajectory that he didn't really hit his stride as a full-fledged, you know, no doubt all-star until he, Jerry, Jeremy Lynn played with him. And Clifford threw those two guys out, out together a lot. And basically, Kendall Walker became the best spot-up scorer in the league on a per-possession basis that year. And that made him a much for more efficient score and it gave him just opportunities 10 to somewhere between 10 to 15 possessions a game. He'd just stand in the corner and not run around and not be on ball and not respond to defensive pressure. And that's just, you know, not, I mean, it, it's a little lazy at times to take another player's kind of template and blueprint and try to carry that over to another guy. Um, so I don't want to you know say that's exactly what this should look like, but I think that's, with Trey's ability to knock down shots off the catch and the need to preserve some of his energy and get him doing more diverse, more diverse uh, sets of things. I think it looks a lot like that to me. And maybe with Lou, this is the legitimately the first opportunity to maybe kind of 
coax Trey into kind of embracing that that approach. Uh, how do, do you think that that is something that they would continue to do if DeAndre Hunter comes back and looks anything like what he looked like in the first month? Yeah, that's I mean that's that's going to be one of the tricky things because. Um, um, yeah, I, I guess maybe I need to say you know. I didn't really follow the line of thinking all the way through <laughs> there. Uh, we're kind of going on the fly here, but like I, you, you, I'm kind of going back to what you were saying about uh, what should happen if teams try to trap Trey. And so, you know, you, Lou is one alternative because if Lou has the ball to start, you know, they're not obviously not at that point going to trap Trey, but it seemed like early in the season that DeAndre Hunter was uh, the best relief valve that they had in those situations where Trey was getting trapped. Sorry. That was the second half of the thought that I got stuck on. Yeah, no, it's a great question. Uh, and I think the way I would see that breaking down is, um, you know, what, what DeAndre gives them that's such, um, of such a value when playing with Trey is that teams love to cross match to put one of their big wings, physical wings, athletic wings on Trey and Hunter oftentimes can find a mismatch and, you know, go to the post or, you know, um, face up, you know, opportunity, things like that. And he's so good there. It's so valuable there um, that that's probably what they do when it's Trey and Hunter as the two primary offensive um, players on the court, um, depending on where you slide JC in there in terms of all the things he can do. But Hunter's definitely higher in the pecking order than JC in terms of, uh, intentional touches and actions and sets and all that sort of stuff. Now, and so what that might mean to me is that the tray and Lou minutes come when Hunter's off. Um, that would be one, that maybe it's probably an oversimplification. And like, if you sat down with the NBA coach, they'd give you 18 reasons why you'd have to think more uh, at a more detailed level than that. But at the highest kind of most simple level, I think you use Hunter when Lou is off, and when you bring Lou on to play with Trey, that's when Hunter goes off. That's probably the, the starting point that I would see if that makes sense. Makes sense. Um, I have another question, but I'm blanking. Is there anything else that we should be uh, discussing? When do we actually think these players are going to come back and play? Do, do we have any expectation? I mean, John's update was sort of positive and negative, you know, they were talking about the amount of rehab work that he's able to do, but they're also saying seven to 10 days is when he'll get reevaluated. So, you know, that's usually uh, a time period that's shorter than when they actually come back and get on the floor. So, you know, you're probably looking at a week and a half to two weeks at least. And Nate was saying that he expects Hunter back ahead of Collins, right? Remember that correctly? <laughs> that is a good question. I think, I think that's so. Probably, yeah. yeah, that sounds yeah, right to me. I think that's but, what he said. He said something like uh, John is further off or something. Yeah. 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 It, it's kind of funny that they're getting by, I think, with, uh, with the Hunter situation because they have more wing depth. And they're, they're missing JC as a rebounder and a secondary rim protector and a guy that can slide to the five. 
for sure. Now, if Okongwu keeps progressing the way he has the last four or five games, I think, he gets a little better in terms of second unit, um, you know, defense. Um, but, you know, Solomon Hill's never going to be the strongest rebounder at the floor, <laughs> and he's not going to offer any rim protection. Um, this, a so little just, bit. Uh, okay. Uh, he was yeah. feistier early in the season. Yeah. Maybe with fresh legs. He, I, I remember at the beginning of the season, but like, really? You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, he <laughs> he kind of tapers off after a while. Yeah. And But he's been playing the three for a long, long time, and now they swung him back to the four. Yeah. And so maybe he's just not been doing the running and jumping and, you know, just kind of little things there. But, I mean, Knight, Knight has done a nice job of protecting from the rim for the weak side. and But that's, to me, at the four. I view Knight for what they do on both ends of the court as more of a four. So, you know, when I was advocating for them adding a backup center at the trade deadline and it didn't ever come to fruition. Um, but, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with them being realistic about what their real ceiling is this year and saying, we're going to ride a congruent you know, and let him pick up all of this experience. I, in my mind, I think that's totally legitimate. If if fans see the backup center um, spot perceived to be costing them a chance to win a first-round playoff series, I, that's going to look worse. I, but I think it's a totally fine like, calculation. Um, you know, and they would have had to balance probably Bruno to, to make room for that, which I think would have been fine too. But um, – you know, the situation wasn't there. So, you know, for me, it's 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 strange because Hunter, I think, is so key to what the real core of what they can kind of start to build from. Um, but right now, it's so much more urgent for Capella to be available and then for JC to get back and to be reliable because they just don't have guys that can run and jump, like, and, and defend and rebound like those two. There's just no replacement for either one of them when they're missing. So... Um, you know, hopefully the Hawks can keep finding ways to, to win games, shooting 65% from the three-point end or whatever, <laughs> whatever it was, uh, is a great way to do that. Yeah. Um, you know, they and last night, but there was a stretch where it's like, oh, that's right. Bogdan Bogdanovich is, you know, an 80% uh, effective field goal percentage shooter this month. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he's, and I think, I think we're finally seeing the, how much pressure he can take off of Trey when Trey is forced to give up the ball. Bogdan Bogdanovich is a really good creator. You know, it looks a little, it looks different than the Trey. He gets into the mid-range and gets into the paint and uses his, you know, uh, ball fakes and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And in addition to be a really good perimeter shooter, um, but this is why they spent all that money on him. And then it slides Snell into like a, a lower usage kind of, situation where he's not having to kind of attack with the dribble as much because he's functioning on that you know McDonough just helps everyone else kind of slide in to a natural position and role I think in a way that Herter is just not ready to do that you know um and when they're when everybody's back and playing and all that sort of stuff so you know I think they're still in pretty good shape but man the lack of depth behind Capella and Collins means that those those guys have got to get back and be solid and you know I mentioned Trey missing my view that Trey's going to probably sit three games. I think Capella's going to be maybe four or five. I mean, you know, I think that we're super smart to sit him that New Orleans game, you know, last week worked out great. Um, you know, if I'm even remembering that correctly, I think that's how it went um, and stuff. But, uh, you know, he play? I think he, he played, didn't he? 
He played the Pelicans game in Atlanta, but when they played at the end of the road trip, he sat that game, I oh. think. I thought he was the one guy that played every game, but maybe I'm – Oh, maybe it was. Yeah, maybe I'm misremembering I that. Thinking he's the one guy that played all eight, like or started all eight. Yeah, so maybe it was I the first. Double check. Yeah, I thought he missed a game recently, but I mean, this season is just a big mashup <laughs> in my brain. Um, but I, I remember at the beginning of that road trip, or or not long before that road trip, they sat Clint like I think twice ahead of the road trip. Right. And I think that's what some of the rest of the season might look like is them saying, "Oh, we've got you know, Miami coming up, or whoever, you know." So we're gonna, you know, if we have three and four nights, we're gonna choose one of the games where we're not playing some little fighting with position about to, to get him to sit. So, but um, it's also, you know, a bad loss, ugly loss, not so much fun to watch, but hey, at least we got to see a Kongu, you know, have the best game of his career. And if uh, if that's the silver lining on a game like that, then that could be meaningful down the line, not too far. Yeah, his, his trajectory is... is... <laughs> Really picked up in the last two weeks. Yeah, he's such uh, a smart, instinctive, you know, young player. It's um, he has he has a lot of potential to do things. I I, I don't think it'll always show up, in the, show up in the stat sheet, but he's such a heady, instinctive player. He, he kind of you can tell he fills the game really well and sees something happening, and he covers territory so efficiently. It isn't like he's like at you know. In, you know, top gear, he just kind of slides, you know, and right. moves efficiently and covers ground. So it's, you know, I think it's exciting um, to, to see him progressing. So yeah. Ho- hopefully their investment in him being their full-time backup center will look really good in the May time frame. Just a random thought from before, like, I think the Hawks are at a point where they really have to prize ducking that play in tournament just in terms of season goals, because I mean, I think the Hawks have to be pretty realistic in what they're going to be able to do this postseason. But at the same time, I think that getting Trey five games or six games just holds so much more value than getting them one. Oh, you're so right. I, I just, it's, you know, it's, it's so risky now. Like, you have to be a top six seed to kind of count on somebody getting the full playoff experience. Like this, that one game is, you know, it's just, it's almost not fair. Like if, if you're an up and coming player and you're a seven seed and you have one bad day, if you're gone and you just, you'd miss out on basically a season's worth of experience that would have helped you in future postseasons. Yeah. At least they get seventh. No, Statistically, they're more likely to stay in right. and get get into the eight, but so it matters there. But but you're right. I mean, getting sixth or better, and right now it just feels like fifth is right there. You know, the Hornets have so many of their guys hurting, and you know, the Celtics can't seem to kind of get their you know their stuff together, and the Pacers look like they're kind of falling apart, and you know, the Raptors are really falling apart. So it's just this you know chasm has kind of opened up right there, but but they're you know, a team led by a young guy. And so I, I think it's going to be choppy at times, like it was, you know, last night. And um, if they end up seventh, you know, I don't think we need to all pull our hair out or, you know, you know, do anything crazy. 
hopefully they'll they'll get six. I mean, it is going to be interesting to see if they can get into a four or five matchup. If you know what their what the odds Vegas will get them to win that series, um, and I think it comes down to how experienced to the larger area, like how experienced that opponent is. Like Miami played all the way to the final. You know, it's it. I don't. I think fans sometimes who only follow one team, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Don't know how hard it is to learn how to be successful in the playoffs and how much playoff experience factors in. That's where that's going to be the uphill part for the Hawks. They can hopefully lean on Gallo and Capella and Lou and, you know, to kind of get an idea and have some leadership around all of that, but it's still super hard to do. Um, but, you know, if they get into a four or five matchup against, you know, may, maybe not Miami, whoever that might be, it, it could be a fun series, you know. I, well, it'll be fun for me anyway, but for the general, you know, set of Hawks fans, hopefully, hopefully it'll be fun. But to your point, really from a – importance perspective it's that experience that's so crucial to them not only feeling like they hit their goals this year and kind of got what they were looking for but setting themselves up for next year to feel like okay we can take ourselves seriously to think about going past the first round of the playoffs if we can get our team and roster kind of set up the right way yeah you mentioned Lou and Gallo and it's kind of a double-edged sword I wrote about when the Hawks traded for, for Lou that, you know, it's really remarkable that, you know, behind Trey young, they have uh, two free throw machines in Lou Williams and Gallinari. You know, they're both ridiculous free throw drawers, ridiculous free throw makers. Um, you know, the, the volume of free throws that those two can, can put together in a, in a season is, is remarkable. I think for the Clippers two years ago, you know, they made something like 900 free throws combined, <laughs> which, you know, lose, lose coming off the bench, you know, playing a heavy, heavy role, but uh, they're elite free throw makers. But when you come to the playoffs, those are two kind, you know, they, they have a lot of playoff experience, but I think those are two players that don't have necessarily the, the deep playoff experience that have to go and do some historical double checking here, but you know, I think those that's those are two players for whom the playoffs have always been kind of a challenge because they're so good at, at drawing free throws and right. you know, like Trey, they're they are two players that you get a little bit worried about. Like, you know, are the free throw opportunities going to be there? You know, that it's it's I think that you know, they have some perspective on that. Yeah, meanwhile, Collins just looks around and goes, oh, everybody's getting the same calls I get. Don't get now. <laughs> and then everybody's re-baseline at the JC level of nobody gets calls. <laughs> like right. JC doesn't get calls now. But it's, it, it's a it's a really good point. It's, and it's kind of funny because, you know, prior to, especially prior to Lou joining, when I would watch, say, like the first quarter, if they would get into the bonus, I would think to myself, well, Trey needs to play the whole quarter to maximize their, uh, their being in the bonus. And if the plan was for him to come out, say with three minutes left in the quarter, they just need to rework whatever the rotation was going to work. Now you just throw Lou out there and it's all the same. Right. Lloyd <laughs> that helps. About that. Like they were really on that early in this season. Right. Um, you know, they were trying to get teams in the bonus. And when they did, it was, it was trade time. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've I've asked you some questions about Trey and brought up questions about Trey, and I promise I'm I'm not trying to be negative about Trey. And here's here's something that I think is a positive. 
Uh, over the last few weeks, you know, Bogdanovich has played great. And for the small forward, they've kind of alternated a bit between Kevin Herter and Tony Snell. And it seems like whoever starts has been money. Like Tony Snell, when he was starting, looked terrific. Uh, Kevin Herter just started a couple of games ago. And it looks like being back in the starting lineup has kind of given him some juice again. Uh, I think that's a – am I crazy to think that that's just a function of playing with Trey? Like he, he just gets that much attention? That's not crazy at all. Um, and I think the decision between Snell and, and Herter is if you feel like you're going to have to run, you know, dribble handoff or pick and roll on the backside, you want Herter doing that over Snell. You know? Right. Snell's fine kind of dribbling into a, a runner or something like that, but it has to be kind of an obvious pass. And, you know, and he's not the most secure. He's just, he's not a very, um, versatile ball handler he kind of has you know a straight right. line dribble and, and Herter has he's he's know, been good at uh he's been good I think in in just kind of the simple actions where it's just him and a big right yeah and I and you know you've mentioned before in our conversations how Nate wants him to attack early then if they don't get anything early to kind of set up and make the defense really work the almost the whole possession and I think I think that attack early and the ball movement Herter is going to kind of fit into kind of swinging the ball, attacking with the dribble, kicking out, things like that more than Snell is. So I think in terms of how Nate wants to see them get the offense established, Herder's a better fit than Snell um, in that attack early, if not if nothing there, you know, really make the defense work. Herder's just a more versatile offensive player kind of fits there. So, which is interesting because you, you've asked me a few times, you know, do I start Snell in a playoff situation? And my mindset was, yeah, he's a low usage, good, you know, high high volume or high percentage shot maker and a trusted defender and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, it looks like Nate is steering more towards Herter kind of having that opportunity and so far so good. So good to see that. Even if it means maybe I was wrong. <laughs> right. And it's all sort of mood if they get Hunter back because I think, the dream scenario, and we've seen very, very little of it, if any, is that, you know, you, if you have everybody healthy, it's Bogdanovich and Hunter, isn't it? It is. And that's, that's good size at those positions. Um, it gives you some defensive versatility there. Um, and, I mean, and that one of the things I've liked about the, the Snell acquisition at the beginning was if he starts, comes off the bench, plays 30 minutes, plays 50 minutes, he just doesn't care. And that is – so useful uh, on a team like the Hawks where they are still trying to prioritize the time the young guys get on the floor, trying to kind of get them into roles that are still conducive to them continuing to develop. He'll just do whatever you ask. And that's one of the, what maybe his single greatest value to this team is just, he's, he's so fungible. Is there anything else you want to uh, address for this one? I don't think so. I I don't, you know, we get one more look, I guess, at Vooch. He's not in the division anymore, so I guess we'll see how the, the Hawks deal with that, you know, on Friday night Chicago. We'll, we'll a get team to with no All-Stars versus a team with two All-Stars. There you go. How, how do the Hawks even begin to try to attack that game? <laughs> <laughs> it should be a good game, right? It should yeah, be a good game. No, it should be a good game. Yep. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Have a good one. Yeah, thanks, Kevin.